Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trials stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. With verdicts of guilty rendered against the three defendants, we will continue our complete coverage of the trial from gavel to gavel. As you know, on our last episode, we concluded our examination of Travis McMichael's testimony in his own defense. Today, we go back to the beginning of the state of Georgia's case against the three defendants, and we examine the way the prosecutors organized and presented the evidence against the three defendants. That's coming up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. prosecution begins its case against the defendants by calling four members of Glynn County law enforcement who responded to two calls from the Satilla Shores neighborhood on February 23, 2020. The first was a 911 call at 1.08 p.m. by neighborhood resident Matt Albenzi. The second was a police radio report of shots fired, which occurred six minutes later at 1.14 p.m. Ricky Minshew was the first officer dispatched to the Satilla Shores neighborhood after Matt Albenzi, the man who lived across the street from the under-construction lot at 220 Satilla Drive, called 911 to report a suspicious black male on that property. Officer Minshew takes the stand and, under questioning from Prosecutor Larissa Olivier, testifies that as he was driving into the neighborhood, he heard two loud pop sounds, rounded a corner, and was flagged down by two white males. And uh, I seen two males uh, there in front of me, and I uh, observed a, a black male laying in the middle of the roadway, um, and there was, uh, he was covered in blood. Uh, he appeared to be uh, unresponsive to his surroundings. Um, he appeared to be deceased. He was uh, covered in blood. Uh, the, the back of his shirt, uh, the majority of the back of the shirt was, was covered in blood. Um, and up underneath him, uh, he had bled out to the point that the blood was uh, exceeding the perimeter of his body. Uh, so he was laying face down on his stomach uh, in the puddle of blood. Okay. Did you hear any kind of sounds at all coming from the deceased male? Yes, ma'am. I heard uh, it's uh, like, like an agonal breathing. I've always heard it being called a death rattle. Minshew testifies that he then saw defendant William Bryan and asked if he was a passerby. So you ask him if he's a passerby coming through. Mm-hmm. Is that a yes? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And his response is not necessarily. Yes. Okay. Now, did Brian then begin to tell you what happened to lead up to Ahmad lying dead on the street on Holmes Drive, Holmes Road? Yes. Okay. Did Brian tell you that he actually got involved in the chase that led to Ahmad's death? Yes. Okay. Now, let's talk about the beginning of that involvement, okay? 
What was Brian doing when he noticed something was going on? What did he say he was uh, doing? He said he was working on his porch. Okay. And where was that? Was that on Burford? Uh, yes, ma'am, at uh, 307 Burford. Okay. And um, did he say something happened to catch his attention as he's working there on his front porch? Yes, ma'am. He said he saw a black male run by. Okay. And then he saw a white uh, truck run by, uh, drive by. Okay. Now, when he saw the black guy run by, did he recognize that black guy? Uh, he didn't say he recognized him, though. He said he didn't recognize mm -hmm. him, right? Now, when he first saw that truck drive by, <clears throat> did he recognize the people in the truck? Um, no, ma'am. Okay. Now, what did he do after seeing the black, uh, the black guy in the truck? He said, uh, he hollered at the truck, y'all got him? Okay. So he said he hollered at the truck, y'all got him? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So having no knowledge of what was going on, he asked the truck whether they had him. That's correct. Okay. Did he ever ask the black guy if he was okay? No, ma'am, he did not say he did. And what was his immediate response? I mean, I'd cut him off pretty good now. Okay, thank you. Did Brian talk about driving on the wrong side of the roadway when he was trying to block Ahmad and, and corner him? Yes. Okay, did he say he, he drove on the wrong side of the roadway? Yes, ma'am. He Can said, uh, when I rounded the corner out there, it was almost like the black guy was tired of running. Okay, did he say that during this time, he overheard anything being yelled towards the black guy. He said, he heard, uh, stop, what'd you do? Or something like that. What'd you steal, what'd you do? Okay. And that's during the time that he's being chased, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Now, according to Brian, did Ahmad ever say anything during the chase that Brian could hear? Uh, he said he never said a word. He never said a word, okay. And did he say how close he got to Ahmad during the chase when, when Mr. Bryan was chasing him? He said he had his window down and at some point he got right up close next to him. Okay. And he didn't hear him say a thing? That's correct. He did not. Did he ever tell you that he called 911 or anything? No, he did not tell me. He never mentioned it. Okay. Did Brian ever see Ahmad with any kind of weapon? Uh, he never told me he saw him with a weapon. Okay. You uh, specifically asked him about a weapon and whether he saw one? Uh, I don't recall. Okay, but Brian never told you he saw a weapon. That's correct. He never told me he saw a weapon. Okay. Did Brian ever say Ahmad made any verbal threats towards him? during um, this time when he was being chased? No, ma'am, he said he didn't hear him ever say anything. Okay, any verbal threats towards anybody at all? No, ma'am. Did Brian ever say he saw Ahmad commit any crime at the point where Brian decided to leave his house? Uh, no, ma'am, he did not report any crime to me. Okay, did Brian ever say he was trying to make a citizen's arrest of Ahmad? No, ma'am. Did Brian ever say he was trying to arrest Ahmad for a criminal trespass? No, ma'am. Loitering? No, ma'am. Burglary? Didn't mention it. No. Attempted burglary? No, ma'am. Aggravated assault? No. Anything? No, ma'am. And did Brian ever say that he told Ahmad that Ahmad was under arrest for anything? No, ma'am. 
did Brian ever say that he saw Ahmad throwing anything anywhere, like from out of his pockets or anything during the chase? No, ma'am. According to a pool reporter in the courtroom, several jurors appear to write this down. Minshew testifies that Brian tells him about and then shows the officer the video that he has recorded. At this moment, some of Brian's video is played with audio, including the shots from Travis McMichael's rifle. This marks the first time that this jury has been shown the video of McMichael shooting and killing Ahmaud Arbery as evidence in this trial. The prosecution then concludes its questioning of Officer Minshew. After the lunch break, Jason Sheffield, representing Travis McMichael, begins his cross-examination of Officer Minshew. One of the things that you've already testified to is that there was a lot of pacing going on, right? Travis McMichael was doing a lot of pacing in a small area. Correct. Greg McMichael was doing a lot of pacing in a small area. That's correct. Travis McMichael actually had blood kind of covering him front and back. Yes. Right? Okay. You recall seeing that he had blood on his arms, right? Yes, it was on his arms, hands, uh, and on his head. On his head. Yep. And you recall seeing that he also had some blood here on the back of his neck even. Yes. Okay. So this was a fairly, as you were beginning to observe it, a fairly traumatic scene that was kind of unfolding in front of your eyes. Absolutely. And Mr. Travis McMichael was still under the influence of that trauma. Objection to speculation, Your Honor. Based on your observations, he was still under the influence of that trauma. Objection to speculation, Your Honor. I'm not asking to speculate what was in his mind, that he was visibly he was visibly traumatized by the experience. Well, let, let's let, let him describe it. That'll be easier for the court. Well, I'm going to lead him with cross-examination, Your Honor, and so I'm going to say to him the question that I want him to answer. So, understanding what the basis of the question is, Yes. It's going to be important for the court to get an understanding from the witness his sure. whether he is responding to your question or whether he's testifying to it. You can ask it either way. Okay. I'm not asking you to guess what was in his mind, but you visually took in the way he was behaving. Is that correct? I did. And he appeared to be traumatized. Um, I would suspect that any person with a soul or a heart would be uh, in shock. You heard that. me asking about Travis McMichael, though, right? Yes, I remember. Okay. He appeared to be traumatized. I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, I was also taking in a lot of things myself, uh, trying to figure out what had happened and what type of dangers could be in, around my area. That's the main thing that I was thinking of. Uh, but I did see him pacing uh, okay. back and forth, yes. At some point, did you hear him cry out, gasp and cry out? Uh, I don't recall. Don't recall that. Okay. You had testified to, on direct examination with the state, is that Mr. Bryan said to you that he did not recognize the people in the truck, meaning in the white truck. Yes. In fact, he told you he really didn't know who those people were. You recall him telling you that? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but that was, it was today. I don't know who those people are. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And at no time did he say to you that, that he was in communication with Travis McMichael or Greg McMichael throughout any of this interaction. That's correct. That there were no hand signals by Travis to go a certain direction or not. No, he didn't mention any of that. After Jason Sheffield completes his cross, Kevin Goff, representing William Bryan, begins his questioning. I believe you answered earlier that, that one of your um, primary responsibilities as first officer on the scene was to secure it for your safety and the safety of the other officers. Correct. Okay. Um, 
is it fair to say you wouldn't be relaxing in a truck with a random stranger if you felt your safety was in danger? Upon getting on scene, one of my first things that I do is I do scan for immediate threats. And I did not see anything that was immediate threat at that time. Uh, and it's not uncommon for us to be, whether it's, you know, going to a home and going into um, people's personal space in their rooms and such uh, during investigations, so it's not uncommon. Okay. Well, obviously, you didn't view Mr. Bryan as a threat. No, I didn't see him as a threat. Okay. Uh, and uh, is it fair to say you were trying to develop a rapport with Mr. Bryan at this point? That's what we do, yes, sir, every okay. time we interview. Because you get more information. Sure. Uh, and... Uh, in your defense, you advised the other officers that Mr. Bryan was a main witness. Uh, Mr. Bryan advised me that he was a witness. And when I get on scene, whatever people are claiming to be, that's what they are. Kevin Hogue then has a somewhat adversarial exchange with Officer Minshew about Minshew's characterization of the number of times that William Bryan blocked Ahmad Arbery as the defendant was using his truck to pursue Mr. Arbery on February 23rd, 2020. When Mr. Bryan is referring to blocking at that point, that's not moments before the shooting, as suggested by the question. It was, in fact, before Mr. Bryan's video begins. I'm not sure. Okay. All right. To be fair, when you're directed to read a part of the transcript, you read that portion of the transcript. Am I right. right. Okay. It's not your place to correct lawyers when they ask you questions, is it? Uh, no. Okay. On direct examination, I, I believe you said that Mr. Bryan attempted to block Mr. Arbery five times. Do you recall that testimony? Yes. Do you recall there being some question as to how many times Mr. Bryan used the word block as opposed to how many times he actually did block Mr. Arbery? Do you recall that issue? Yes. Uh, it, what was in the transcript versus how many times he actually did it? Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't there. So. Well. But then you answered that, in fact, Mr. Bryan attempted to block Mr. Arbery five times? It was stated in there approximately five, yes, five times, different occasions. Okay. Okay. Well, would it surprise you that a word counter reveals that the word block is used in the transcript, the entire transcript, only six times? Okay. And that three of those times refer to Mr. Bryan circling the block, not blocking Mr. Arbery. Objection, Judge. I'll move on. You recall filling out a police report in this case? I do. Summarizing your encounter with Mr. Bryan that day? Yes. Okay. In your police report, summarizing the conversation you've been testifying to today, how many times did you report that Mr. Bryan blocked Mr. Arbery? None. Well, it'd be one. One. Certainly not five. Am I yeah. correct? Okay. Worded, yes. All right. As Kevin Goff returns to the defense table, Prosecutor Olivier rises for redirect. Mr. Goff asked you whether Mr. Bryan ever used the words run over when talking about what he did to Ahmad. You remember that? Yes. Okay. And he also asked you whether Mr. Bryan ever used the word hit. Remember that? Yes. Okay. Now, did Mr. Bryan use the word block in, words block in? I do recall him using block in and corner. Okay, and he used the word corner as well, right? Correct. Okay, um, and did he also use the words angled at him? Yes, yeah, something at him. Okay. 
Now, you were also asked about you not seeing Mr. Bryan as necessarily a threat. You remember that? Yes. Okay. Because you went and sat in his, uh, his pickup truck. That's correct. Okay. But Mr. Bryan didn't try to hit you with his pickup truck, did he? He did not, no. Okay. He didn't block you with his pickup truck, did he? He did not. Okay. He didn't angle at you with his pickup truck, did he? No. And he didn't corner you into ditches with his pickup truck, did he? No. Okay. And is that why you didn't see him as a threat? I didn't see him as a threat because I didn't see any, any reason uh, to be threatened. Okay. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Officer William Duggan also testifies for the state. He was the second officer on the scene after Ahmaud Arbery was killed. Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski asks Duggan to describe how he was alerted to drive to the Satilla Shores neighborhood on February 23, 2020. On the way home from the, uh, the off-duty job that I was working, I had stopped at uh, a local business uh, to pick up some lunch and uh, had gone across the street to pick up some drinks. And while I was uh, obtaining uh, my stuff in the drive-thru, the radio was on as required. Um, and I heard uh, Officer Minshew come across the radio uh, advising of uh, shots fired and a person was down on the ground in the street. Um, when I arrived, there was a, Officer Minshew's patrol car was parked at the intersection. I parked a little bit to the right back of him. I saw him out walking around. Um, I believe he was beginning to take some pictures of the scene. Um, I did see... Uh, a black male laying on the ground uh, in the middle of the roadway on the pavement. Um, there were a couple of other people uh, walking around, milling around. Um, there was a vehicle in the road uh, further back past the person that was down on the ground. Um, Did you see any firearms or weapons? Immediately upon uh, arriving, I did not. I did not notice anything at, at the initial on-scene response. Prosecutor Dunikowski next asks Officer Duggan to move on to his assessment of Ahmad Arbery's condition. And had you made an earlier determination that there was nothing else you could do for Mr. Arbery? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And why did you make that determination? For the amount of blood loss that I observed on the scene, the lack of rise and fall of the chest, um, and basically the, the gaping wound that I saw in his, in his chest. There's there nothing I can do for him. Travis McMichael's attorney, Jason Sheffield, then begins his cross of Officer Duggan. Initially, Sheffield appears to seek to establish that by the time Duggan arrived on the scene, there was nothing that could have been done for Mr. Arbery. The second Thing that you then sort of undertook when you got into the scene was to do an assessment of Mr. Arbery. Is that fair? Yes, it is. Okay. 
Now, you have had a lot of medical training, 184 hours, I believe is what you testified to. Yes. Okay, which includes assessing the health and wellness of people who have been shot by guns. That is correct. Okay. In your time doing that, have you come to understand about wounds and gunshot wounds and blood loss? Yes, sir. All right. Is it fair to say that you have made observations in the past about the amount of blood loss a person can endure before it becomes fatal? Yes, sir. Okay. When you had arrived at the point where you were going to be assessing Mr. Arbery, and before you turned him over to really check and look at wounds, there was a lot of blood that you noticed on the ground. That is correct. Okay. Was it your opinion at that moment before you even flipped him over that the volume of blood loss could have been such a complete volume that he would have been deceased at that moment? It could have. Okay. And when you turned him over, one of the things that I think you noticed, and I'll just say this, um, you wrote a report in this case, right? That is correct. You and I discussed the report that you wrote. Yes, sir. Okay. And in that report, really, you wrote a lot of your observations about that day. That is correct. Okay. And those observations include observations about Mr. Arbery when you came up to first encounter him. That is correct. Okay. And one of the things that you noted was that he had fixed eyes. That is correct. Okay. And fixed eyes is a sign of brain death. You familiar with that? Not particularly, no. Okay. You noted fixed eyes as something that indicated that he was, his eyes were not reacting to light. Correct. Right? His pupils were not opening or narrowing, right? Correct. Okay. And that's what you mean by fixed. Correct. And that his, his gaze was also not moving. His, his eyeballs were not looking around or doing anything like that. Correct. Okay. And I believe that you made the conclusion that there was nothing that you could do to do any form of resuscitation. That is correct. Okay. Sheffield then moves on to examine Officer Duggan's interaction with Travis McMichael after he made his assessment of Mr. Arbery's condition. Now, one of the things that you also did when you came onto the scene is you made some observations about Travis McMichael, who you've been kind of referring to as Junior. That is correct. Okay. And what you mean by Junior is that he's the son of, of Mr. McMichael. That is correct. Okay. And one of the things that you observed about him was that he was very upset. He appeared, yes. Yes. That's, that's something that you noted in your report. You wrote the words, very upset. Is that correct. correct? Correct. And you also talked about the fact that he was sitting kind of off to the side by himself, correct? I believe so, yes, sir. Okay. And that he was doing a lot of pacing, right? I don't recall him doing a whole lot of pacing. I uh, thought we just watched the video where he, you saw him kind of pacing back and forth. On the video, I saw that. Okay, so the, fair, the point that you're trying to make is maybe you don't independently recall that, but now that you've watched the video, you see that there was a lot of pacing going on. Yes, sir. Okay. Correct. But you did notice that he was covered, he, he was covered in blood. That is correct. correct. Do you recall seeing that uh, he had also had blood on the back of his neck? Do you remember seeing that? No, sir. Okay. One of the things that you did at some point, I think we may even see you do it on the video, is you kind of indicate over here, and you ask... Travis, 
if he is okay. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And what you meant by is he okay essentially is because he has blood on him and because he's there at this scene of the shooting, you want to know if he's got a physical problem ongoing at that moment, right? That was the meaning of my question. That was the yes. meaning of your question, but he he interpreted that in his response to you with kind of an emotional response by saying, no, I just killed someone. That's correct. Okay. And as you and I were talking, and I was asking you to, to help me understand how you interpreted his emotional response, I believe what you shared with me is that it was like a driver of a car who had just hit a child and then asking that driver after that accident, are you okay? And the person says, no, I'm not okay. I just killed the child. That's how you kind of likened it to me. Is that fair? That's correct. Okay. Sheffield next asks Officer Duggan a series of questions about, quote, use of force and de-escalation, end quote. Taken at face value, this line of inquiry seems intended to paint Sheffield's client, Travis McMichael, as cooperative with the police. Now, one of the things that the state asked you about was your training. And after 12 years of training, uh, part of that includes use of force training, right? That is correct. When to use particular styles of policing to try to either, number one, de-escalate a situation, right? Correct. Or to have to use a particular level of force to either protect others or yourself. Fair? That's correct. Okay. Um, one of the things that I think you've been taught is leaps. Does that term have meaning to you? Leaps, L-E-A-P-S. Not familiar, no sir. Okay. Are you familiar with, in terms of when you begin to investigate a situation that you would use something that's called LEAPS that stands for, I'll, I'll expand it for you, listening, empathizing, asking questions, paraphrasing, and summarizing. Is that a technique that you're familiar with when it comes to engaging with either a suspect or somebody that you might be investigating? No, sir. Okay, so the, the how about this? When you're investigating a particular person that you may think has done something wrong, one of the techniques that you might do is to come up and talk to that person. Correct. Okay. You might ask them questions. Yes. To try to understand what's going on. Correct. And this is something that you've been taught to do as a police officer, right? Correct. Don't just assume the worst. Let's begin with or attempt to have a conversation. That is right. Okay. And you might try to empathize with that person to try to see it from their perspective a little bit as a way to potentially keep things from rising up and getting heated. Correct. Okay. The other thing that you would certainly be taking stock of is the mental state of the person, right? Beyond the surface level reasons for Sheffield's line of inquiry, he also appears to be trying to use Officer Duggan as a de facto use of force and de-escalation expert in order to offer the jury an implicit comparison between the McMichael's cooperativeness to the local police and Ahmaud Arbery's fleeing from the McMichael's. As this becomes apparent, Prosecutor Dunikowski objects. At this point, I'm going to go ahead and 
object relevancy of Officer Duggan and his training as far as all of these things have to do with his responding to the scene of this homicide? My response is, Your Honor, this officer was asked about his training. He's on cross-examination about that and about his approach, and I feel it's a fair area for cross-examination. Objection sustained. We've seen what his involvement was as far as this particular case, unless you can work me through exactly what this would be relevant to in his role in this case. Yeah. We have an officer who's been trained, who's gotten training in use of force and de-escalation. He has a knowledge to answer some of these questions, and as the court knows, this case is going to be about use of force and de-escalation. The objection sustained. Okay. Judge Timothy Walmsley sustains the objection and appears to warn the defense attorney away from this line of inquiry, though he does allow Sheffield one final set of questions on the subject. And so also, at no point did you have to use with Travis or Greg McMichael any kind of verbal commands against them to try to de-escalate them in any way. Correct. Okay. You didn't have to say something like, stop, don't come any closer. I didn't. You did not. I did have Mr. Michael, Mr. Senior. Okay. There was a moment where you were close to Mr. Arbery that Mr. Greg McMichael started to walk towards you a little bit. I believe there were two times, yes. Okay. And you put your hand out and you said you need to just stand back for a minute. That is correct. So that's an example of how you might use a verbal command to keep some distance between you and another person, in this case, Mr. Greg McMichael. That is correct. Okay. But at the time that he walked to you, he wasn't doing anything like reaching into pockets or holding any kind of a weapon. No, he was not. Okay. You were essentially trying to assess Mr. Arbery at that moment. Yes. Okay. And so for the entirety of your time on the scene, you never had to say to Travis, stop or don't come closer to me. Correct. He was very cooperative and kind of waited over to the side. That is correct. Next, the prosecution calls Glynn County crime scene investigator Sheila Ramos, who took crime scene photos and collected forensic evidence on the day of Mr. Arbery's killing. Investigator Ramos walks prosecutor Paul Camarillo through a series of photographs, beginning with photos of the gunshot wounds to Mr. Arbery's body. So this is um, what appears to be a gunshot wound uh, to his wrist. So this is the uh, close-up of the wound, that, or the gunshot wound that's to the center of his chest. And this is the gunshot wound that's uh, underneath his armpit and his shoulder. Ramos next explains the evidence that led her to conclude that one of the shots from Travis McMichael's shotgun went through the window of a neighbor's home and lodged in the wall of that home. And then Paul Camarillo returns investigator Ramos to the question of whether any objects were found in Ahmad Arbery's possession as the crime scene team processed his clothing. So um, when Ahmad was removed by the coroner's office, this is um, the area that he was you know, laying at. So this here, um, whenever the coroner office uh, takes control of the body, they put him in a black bag and they will um, make an identifier marker, which is just a tag that has information on it. And then that red uh, zip ties seals it so that way nobody can tamper uh, with that bag. At the time you took that picture, was there any sort of identification on, on the body? There was not. Okay. Um, 
Is there anything in his pockets or anything anything like that that, that could help identify? There was not. Um, I think we already talked about him, Mr. Aubrey, having nothing in his pockets that mm -hmm. y'all found. Correct. So, um, do you know if he had a telephone or a cell phone on him that day? He did not. Um, what about a wallet or any sort of weapon or anything like that, tools? No. During his cross, Jason Sheffield asks Investigator Ramos whether she canvassed the neighborhood to determine whether Ahmad Arbery might have discarded anything in his pockets. She answers that she did not. Sheffield moves on to ask Investigator Ramos about the weapon that killed Ahmad Arbery. I think you've also testified that the firearm that you collected had an empty shell in the chamber, meaning a spent shell that was in the chamber. That's correct. Okay, it had not been ejected out of the chamber and a new round loaded. Correct. Okay, now are you familiar with the dynamics of how that shell would be ejected out? I am. It would only be ejected out if the person with the gun re-racked it again to put a new live round in. That's correct. Okay. You actually saw him back at headquarters. Who? Travis McMichael? Yes. Yeah, you had a very brief interaction with him there. And I believe you noticed that he was in a distraught state. Yes. And I think you even asked him, are you okay? And he said no. Yes. Okay. Now, the next day, you went back to the neighborhood, and this was, we were talking about doing some of this neighborhood canvas. Correct. Is that right? And as you were walking through the neighborhood and coming up Satilla, you came across Mr. McMichael. Correct. Now he lives, in terms of your canvas, he lives right here at 2.30. Correct. That correct. So 2.30 is in the heart of the houses that you're knocking on the doors, right? Correct. Okay. And again, when you saw Mr. McMichael that day, he was outside in his yard. Correct. Uh, again, he was distraught. Correct. He was upset, right? Correct. Trying to figure it all out. Correct. What he said to you. I'm just trying to figure this all out. Correct. The prosecution's last witness on the first full day of testimony was Glynn County Police Officer Adam Tyler Jackson. Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski asked Jackson about how he was drawn to the scene of Ahmaud Arbery's shooting. He had heard the report of shots fired come over his police radio and how long it took him to get to the scene, about 15 minutes, before asking him about what he did once he arrived on scene. When you got there, you were in a patrol car. Yes. And what did you see as far as the scene itself? Um, I saw um, there was a body in the street, mm -hmm. and I saw a truck over to the side of the road, and I saw uh, Officer Minshew over where the truck was. What was the task that you were then assigned to do when you arrived on the scene um, at the corner of Holmes and Satilla Drive on February 23rd, 2020? Uh, my supervisor, Sergeant Leska, he asked me to talk to people that lived in the area, see if there were any witnesses, um, see if anybody had cameras that maybe faced the street, anything like that. Um, I talked to one gentleman named Diego Perez and asked him if he had any cameras on the exterior of his home. He said he did and that he would see if he had any kind of camera footage. Uh, he returned to me a short time later with a uh, thumb drive memory card which he said had video footage on it. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. 
Join us on our next episode as we continue our examination of the way the prosecutors organized and presented the evidence against the three defendants in this case. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. <laughs>